Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com. Sketches from Scripture presents Great News, a teaching series from the Gospel of Matthew. The Jewish nation had put their trust in the God of Abraham, the law of Moses, and the kingdom of David. But by the first century, they were under Roman rule, their moral culture was eroding, and it seemed their God was hidden away behind gates and curtains. Suddenly, an unknown manual laborer from a small village hits the streets with a fantastic announcement. The Gospel according to Matthew tells the story of a self-proclaimed rabbi from Nazareth who took Galilee by storm, then Judea, then Jerusalem, then Samaria, then the whole Roman world to the entire earth. In his many teachings and stories, Rabbi Yeshua brings but one message. Your heart and life can be changed because God, King of the universe, is right in front of you. So follow me. This is Great News. What's required to be a Christian? Lots of different re- religious groups, Christian groups, will, will argue about this. Um, some say baptism is required. Some say, say baptism is not required. Some say that uh, re- remaining uh, faithful uh, as a part of some kind of church body or something like that is, is required. Some will say, well, no, that's, that's not really required. So what is it? What, what's required to be a Christian? What are sort of the minimum requirements? You know, if there is a sort of get into heaven line, sort of where is that line? And what do you have to do to make sure that you're, that you're over that line? Now, I suspect some of you are, are kind of listing some answers to that. Uh, I also suspect there's at least a couple of you who are maybe um, a little more spiritually mature that might not like that question, that might not think we should be trying to do the minimum. And, 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 and I, I'm with you on that. I understand that. But you, you, you see the, the issue though, right? Jesus is going to save people or he's not. If we believe what we're reading in scripture, we're going to see some more stories about that here in Matthew 13. And how do you know if you're, if you're saved or not? How do you know if you're in or out? When does that happen? And, and then what does that mean? What's required to be a Christian? So uh, it's good if you are concerned about sort of thinking about the minimum, but, you know, it's a question that kind of lingers out there. It's a question that we kind of wonder about. So we're looking at Matthew and Matthew is the gospel written by a Jew to other first century Jews. And it's definitely written from a Jewish perspective. It's talking about fulfilling of prophecy. It's setting up Jesus as a better Abraham, a better Moses, a better Jonah, a better Solomon, a better David, a better Judah. And it's playing on Jewish preconceived notions of a Messiah, a chosen one that God has promised, that God will send, that will liberate Israel And Israel will be a kingdom once again, a king from the line of David will sit on the throne of Israel and rule forever. Jews have been waiting for centuries 
for this chosen one, this anointed one, this Messiah, this christened one, this Christ. And so they're waiting on this Messiah. And so Matthew is making the case to first century Jews, Yeshua of Nazareth is that Messiah for which we have been waiting. Now, it's very important to understand there were many people coming along saying that they were the Messiah, saying that they were the chosen one. In fact, still today, Jews who do not accept Christ as the Messiah are still waiting on a Messiah. And so every year there's a couple of contenders for Messiah and they'll get a little following together of some disciples. Even today, 21st century, uh, modern nation state of Israel, if you go over there now, you will see graffiti of um, people that uh, the followers think, oh, no, this is the Messiah. This is the guy. This is the one we've been waiting on. That's happening even today. I've seen it myself. I've seen the graffiti myself in Jerusalem. So Jews have been waiting on a Messiah. Matthew's making the case to his contemporary first century Jews, Yeshua of Nazareth, the self-proclaimed rabbi. He's the one. He's it. And I'm going to make the case by just telling you what he did and what he taught. And what we've seen is that Jesus comes on the scene and begins quickly telling his disciples, I'm going to turn you into something. You're going to go with me. You're going to follow me. I'm going to change you into something. And that something is uh, fishers of men. I'm going, to, I'm going to teach you how to fish for people. What Jesus is saying right out of the gate is, I am coming to make disciples out of you. And what you're going to learn how to do as a disciple is to make disciples of other people. So there are things about faith and there's things about religion. There's things about theology and you're going to learn all those things. and You're going to practice all those things. There's acts of service and all kinds of things like this. There's some theological principles that, that have to be shared and that sort of thing. But process wise, I'm going to teach you how to teach others how to be disciples, how to trust and follow me, Jesus says. So Matthew 419, he says first words to his disciples in the gospel of Matthew, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. From that point forward, we see Jesus taking that discipleship mission to a group of people, those contemporary first century Jews, who were very comfortable in their religion. I think a good parallel to 21st century America, because there's so much different about 21st century America and being a first century Jew, but I think a good parallel might be those of us who are kind of comfortable in church. We've grown up in church. We've Maybe we've been to the same church our whole life. We've Got our pew that we always sit on, you know, one of my favorite King of the Hill episodes is when the new family shows up at church and takes the Hills pew. <laughs> and so the Hills go church hopping and they try all these different churches in town because they couldn't get their pew back. And we were like that. We set up our little kingdom and we think, okay, here's, this is where, uh, I, this is where I do church. This is where I'm a Christian. And some people definitely leave their Christianity at church and are completely different people outside the building. But most Christians that I know are, are consistent. They're consistent in their day-to-day -day life with the things that they hear on Sunday morning. I, I personally don't see uh, a lot of people that are uh, regular in church that are really living a disparate lifestyle outside of church. I don't see that. I know what happens, but I, I, don't, I don't see that uh, broadly in the majority. Mostly what I see is people who do believe and practice the things that they hear on Sunday, but it really is kind of, um, it's, it's kind of like being part of a group. I, I, I don't want to call it like a country club because that has kind of a snooty thing. A lot of the churches that I've been in have been smaller. I've been a part of some large churches. North Boulevard obviously is one of the largest churches in the solar system, churches of Christ anyway. Um, 
I've been part of some small churches where there were maybe 30 English speakers um, in the church. The church that I grew up in was not very big, but I mean, it's, you know, a couple hundred people um, between uh, probably 200 and 400 people throughout all the years that I've been associated with it. A decent sized church. All the different sizes of church, pretty much the majority of people that I know listen to the things on Sunday, believe it, and try to do it mostly throughout the week. They're not really hypocrites. They might fail. They might not be that good at it. Um, they might not be very spiritually mature in a lot of ways, some of them. But most of the people that I know, you know, they're, they are they believe it and they're sticking with it and, and um, they're not living a, a two-faced lifestyle. So Matthew is not coming into first century Jews and saying, hey, you guys are two-faced. You're preaching one thing and doing another. There, there is a little bit of that going on. But predominantly what is happening is people are religious. They've got their religion and they've forgotten about their relationship with God twice now already. Jesus has said in this gospel, as we've read, learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It's not that God doesn't desire sacrifices. In fact, he commands the sacrifices. But why does he command the sacrifices? They are a, a penance for different things. They are offerings to show a relationship between them and God. They are a, a giving of thanks. It's, it's the penance that God wants. It's the sorrow. It's the thanks. It's the relationship. That's what God is after. Not the, not the bull. Not the ram, not the dove. That's not what God is after. He doesn't need those things. Those were his things already. He says in, uh, I believe it's in Micah, you know, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. <laughs> what do I, in other words, what do I need your sacrifice for? What I want is, is your heart. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire the heart that wants to sacrifice. It's the mercy that I desire, not the sacrifice. Jesus has said that twice now, and that's a big clue to what's going on in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is trying to take people who are very religious and help them understand the concept of discipleship. And again, I think this is a good parallel to modern day 21st century American Christians, because I think many of us understand church membership. We understand what a church is, what a church does, what my role is in church, whether I'm sitting in the pew or whether I'm you know, perhaps doing some service things, passing communion or uh, teaching the four-year-olds or whatever, kind of understand my role. I've done that. I'm active. Hey, you know, what else is there to do, right? Well, many of the things that we do in church, honestly, Jesus doesn't command us to go and do those things. I mean, I don't, you know, Jesus commands us to serve each other and to love each other. But is there a specific verse where Jesus says, be sure and serve communion once a month or, you know, whenever you get called upon by a deacon? You know, there's not like specific verses about, about that, right? Uh, make sure that you teach at least one quarter, you know, so your elementary school uh, director doesn't get worn out. You know, there's no verse about that, right? So th these are all things that we've kind of figured out how to do as the church has gone on and progressed. And as we fit it from culture to culture, the church looks obviously different in a lot of ways from culture to culture. But there are things that Jesus definitely commands the church to do. And again, in Matthew, he comes right out of the gate. Hey, I'm going to teach you how to fish for people. What the church is going to be about, what my disciples are going to be about, are going out and telling other people good news, going out, serving and loving them so that they will trust and follow me and so that they will teach other people to trust and follow me and on and on until you have these generations of believers. That's how we go from 11 faithful disciples to billions of Christians in history, right? So it's, it's a very critical idea going from an idea of just not church membership, the things that I do in church, to being a disciple, someone who makes disciples, someone who makes disciple makers, what kind of mind shift do we need to go through? What kind of spiritual growth do we need to achieve? What kind of maturity do we need to develop in order to 
make this change of thinking ourselves as church members to disciples. Many of you have heard a lot of this language used before, and so you're ahead of the game. So that's good. So we're looking at Matthew 13, and we've looked at the general structure of Matthew here. And what we have is we have these five discourses. And each discourse is preceded by a narrative section. So that first couple of chapters of Matthew is, is Jesus being born. And, and the last several chapters of Matthew is the, the passion, you know, Jesus being arrested and uh, um, beaten and crucified, buried, resurrection, ascension. But the big chunk out of the middle, chapters three through uh, 24 or 25, this is the, the, the bread and butter uh, of Matthew. And it's made up of five separate discourses, and each discourse is preceded by a section of narrative. We are now in the third of these discourses. Uh, we're about to look tonight at the third discourse, which is the parables discourse, the kingdom parables discourse. In this third section, I've kind of called kingdom arrival. Here's how it's, everybody's going to behave um, once uh, the kingdom is here. He, um, uh, the next section is kingdom authority. Here's the authority I have. I have authority over this. I have authority over that. Jesus demonstrates those things through healings, through uh, exorcisms, uh, through raising people from the dead. Uh, he's showing that he has authority over the teachers, over the law, over teaching. And now he's at this place of the kingdom arrival, and he's doing more now than just miracles, but he's really showing that he has the authority from God, that when he acts is as if God is acting. He is finally making himself known as equal to God. This is very blasphemous for the first century Jewish teachers, for the Pharisees. It's very blasphemous for them. And it would be blasphemous, except that it's true, except that Jesus is God and he's displaying how he is God. And he's letting them know the kingdom is not just close. It's it's real close. It's right here. It's me. I'm here. I'm the kingdom. I am reigning. I am the king. And so he describes that in 11 and 12, the chapters that we just looked at during the last lesson and goes through the parables in 13, what we're going to look at tonight. That's really the turning point for Matthew. So we've talked before in some of the Old Testament a series that we've done about a chiastic structure. Chi is the Greek letter that looks like an X. And so you get sort of this V shape when you have, uh, what happens is you have thing A and then thing B and then thing C. And then you have the chi, the thing that changes everything. And then you have C prime, B prime, A prime. You have the exact same events play out in reverse order, but now everything is changed because of that chi, because of that thing that changes everything. And so if we were to take these five discourses and look at them in a chiastic structure to see if it fits, because remember, Matthew's a Jew. He's trying to write the Gospel of Matthew as if it's Jewish scripture. That's why he starts with genealogies that call back to Genesis. He's using language that calls back to Genesis and Moses. He keeps calling back to the prophecies of Isaiah and Jonah and other places. As just as if Matthew knows he's writing a continuation of scripture. So it makes sense that he would use chiastic structure since it's all through the Old Testament. That's how Jews often interpreted and read things and taught things. So we look at the five discourses in this way. We see the kingdom arrival is the chi. The kingdom arrival is the thing that changes everything. The thing that changes everything is Jesus being God. See, Jesus is a good teacher in the kingdom announced. He's a powerful teacher in kingdom authority. And we find out the reason that he has authority over both teaching and all of these powers is that because he is God. And so what we're going to see next then is kingdom action, just the same as he gathers disciples 
under kingdom authority and gives them power and sends them out. We're going to see the repercussions. Jesus talks a lot about persecution and things like that when we get into the kingdom action section. Just like Jesus is saying, hey, here's what, here's how you will treat each other if God is reigning over you and Sermon on the Mount during kingdom announced, just like that in the kingdom age, Jesus is going to be painting a picture of the age to come. So it's the same as that A, B, the Chi, and then B prime, A prime. It's the same in reverse order, but everything has changed once you understand Jesus is God. God is among us. Matthew gives you, Matthew tells you this right out of the gate. He's Emmanuel. God is with us, right? So we're looking at this kingdom arrival section, the narrative 11 and 12, and the discourse, the uh, kingdom parables discourse here in Matthew 13. We're looking at that as the chi of the chiasm, that it is the thing that changes everything, the fact that Jesus is God. So what's interesting about these parables is they're not about how Jesus is God. uh, Jesus kind of sets that in the narrative. So the kingdom parables are instead about because I am God, here's the change you must make in your thinking about who I am, who you are, and what all of this means. So with that set up, now let's go and look at Matthew chapter 13. I'm going to quickly read through it. Um, I may skip a few things. It's a little bit of a long chapter, but uh, I'll probably just read through it all, make it just a few notes, and then we'll be done. Matthew chapter 13. On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat down while the whole crowd stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, Consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. But when the sun came up, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it. Still other seed fell on good ground and produced fruit, some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty times what was sown. Let anyone who has ears listen. I just want to take uh, one break. I'm not going to break in the text very much, but I just do want to take one break here and say, this is now one more time where we're seeing Jesus talk about things bearing fruit. So John the Baptist, when we see a little bit of his teaching in early chapters of Matthew, John the Baptist says, branches that don't bear fruit are going to be cut off and thrown into the fire. Jesus has already said that twice now. And now here we are again, right here in the, in the, in the center of the chiasm. And the thing that changes everything, first thing out of the gate is Jesus tells a story about uh, soil that bears fruit, plants that bear fruit. Uh, bear that in mind because we're going to hear some more about that in the rest of these parables to come. Then Jesus, uh, then the disciples came up and asked him, why are you speaking to them in parables? So notice the narrative shift here. Jesus was speaking to everyone. This section here is happening later. It's just Jesus and the disciples. He answered, because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know, but it has not been given to them. For whoever has more will be given to him and he will have more than enough. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. That is why I speak to them in parables, because looking they do not see, and hearing they do not listen or understand. Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled in them, which says, You will listen and listen, but never understand. You will look and look, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, 
and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn back and I would heal them. So again, Jesus is not saying, I'm speaking cryptically because I don't want everybody to get it. What he's saying is I'm speaking cryptically, cryptically because you who want to understand, who want to know more, you will seek it and you will find it out. And those who don't want to know more, then we won't waste our time with them. This is the whole uh, pearls before swine thing we looked at before. Because if they were listening, if they were seeking, they would understand, they would hear, they would see, they would seek, they would change. And Jesus would heal them. He's willing to heal everyone. Again, to his disciples, blessed are your eyes because they do see and your ears because they do hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see the things you see, but didn't see them. To hear the things you hear, but didn't hear them. So listen to the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the one sown along the path. And the one sown on rocky ground, this is one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, but he has no root and is short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, immediately he falls away. Now the one sown among the thorns, this is one who hears the word, but the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. But the one sown on the good ground, this is one who hears and understands the word, who does produce fruit and yields some a hundred, some 60, some 30 times what was sown. He presented another parable to them. The rest of these parables, you can sort of assume like the beginning parable are being presented to a broader audience with descriptions being given to disciples. He presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while people were sleeping, his enemy came, sowed weeds among the wheat and left. When the plants sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also appeared. The landowner's servants came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he told them. So do you want us to go and pull them up? The servants asked him. No, he said. When you pull up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and tie them in bundles to burn them, but collect the wheat in my barn. He presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when grown, it's taller than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until all of it was leavened. Next, notice that this is not in red. This is black text. So this is just the narrator speaking. This is Matthew, the writer, speaking to us. Jesus told the crowds all these things in parables, and he did not tell them anything without a parable. So that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. I will open my mouth in parables. I will declare things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Pause right here and just talk about the word parable for a minute. It's actually taken straight from the Greek. The Greek word is parabole. 
And we would spell it using English letters, P-A-R-A-B-O-L-E. It's very similar to the way we spell parable. And it's made up of two parts, the para and the balo, right? So para means uh, aside, alongside, to the side. So if you think like paranormal activity, right? Normal activity is just human activity. Paranormal activity, well, that's ghosts and things, right? Uh, if you think about uh, you know, paratroopers, well, what are they doing? Well, they're you know, jumping, jumping out the side of a plane, right? Um, so uh, the balo ending, that ball ending, if you hear the word ball in it, something it means thrown, right? That's where we get our word for ball, something that's thrown or ballistic, a ballistic missile. Uh, I don't know if you ever put that together before, but ballistic and ball have the same root because a ballistic missile is something that is launched, is something that is thrown, right? So um, you put those together and what you have is something that is thrown to the side or thrown aside or thrown by the side of. And so a parable is a story thrown alongside a truth, and the story highlights what the truth means. And what's beautiful about a parable is that it's not on top of the truth, it's to the side. It's not explaining everything in great detail, but instead it's only hinting at it in such a way that you must engage with it and uh, ask questions. I have a quote that I, I meant to put in my keynote and I forgot to do that, but I did take a, a picture of it with my phone. So I'm going to pull it up here for you real quick because I wanted to be sure and read it sort of the definition of what a parable is. Here it is. A parable is a metaphor drawn from life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness, leaving the mind in enough doubt about its significance to tease it into active thought. It's a quote from C.H. Dodd. So a parable is a little obscure, not too obscure, because you want to be able to learn something from it if you sort of work through it and find it out. But it doesn't spell everything out for you. And that's sort of what Matthew is getting at here in this narrator section right here in verses uh, 34 and 35. He's saying he taught them everything with parables so that there would be some things kind of kept secret so that people would really have to seek to find, that those who seek would find. And as Jesus says, if they come seek, find, I will answer, I will heal them. Moving on now in verse 36 of Matthew chapter 13. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. His disciples approached him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. So once again, he's told the parable to a large audience. Now, when he's alone with his disciples, presumably the 12 uh, could possibly be a slightly larger group than that. But when we see the word disciples, we assume it's predominantly the 12. They approach him and say, well, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He replied, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed. These are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather from his kingdom all who cause sin and those guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Let anyone who has ears listen. So once again, the parable is explained to the disciples. Also note, every single image in the parable has a direct meaning. 
Jesus intends some direct meaning by every single, there's no word left unused in the parable. And Jesus explains all those things. A couple more parables. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. So uh, a little history background here. I mean, this kind of makes sense just hearing it, but in the first century, if you were a servant working for a landowner and you were, say, digging up a field to do some planting or something like that, and you're, you know, maybe you've got a hoe and you're digging in the dirt and you know what dirt sounds like and you know what it sounds like when you hit a rock, but then clunk, you hit something and it sounds like pottery breaking and you kind of uncover it and you see there's broken pottery and you can look in there and you see there's gold in there. If you were to dig it all out so that it was fully exposed, you're required to go and tell your landowner what you found and it belongs to him because it was in his land. But if you don't dig it out all the way and you cover it back up, you're not required to tell anyone. And so someone who is very industrious and has the money might go and sell everything they have to buy that field, knowing that they're going to lose all their money on the front end. But as soon as they have that field, that treasure now belongs to them and they will have much more than they had before. So a little bit of history, understanding the agrarian history there, uh, gives that that parable a little more color. Uh, I'll read it again. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a large net thrown into the sea. It collected every kind of fish, and when it was full, they dragged it ashore, sat down, and gathered the good fish into containers, but threw out the worthless ones. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will go out, separate the evil people from the righteous, and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Seems like we just heard that in another story. Verse 51, have you understood all these things? They answered him, yes, they presumably being the disciples. Therefore, he said to them, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom treasures new and old. That is a very interesting statement. And we're actually going to end chapter 13 right there because this next section uh, of the rejection at Nazareth, I feel, really goes with uh, chapter 14. So we're going to end there. Now let's talk about this real quick. Therefore, he said to them, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom treasures new and old. Well, Jesus is constantly saying, well, I'm giving you a new teaching. And the things that he's saying are not really that new, but it's a better way of understanding things that they should have understood to begin with, such as Sermon on the Mount, where he fully explains what the law means uh, about marriage, what it means about prayer, what it means about giving, what it means about fasting, these kinds of things. And so Jesus has these new things that he is bringing, but in the new things, he's constantly pointing back to the old things. He's constantly pointing back to Moses. He's constantly pointing back to Abraham. He's constantly pointing back to Genesis and creation. He's constantly pointing back to the law. He's pointing back to the the, the religion that, that God instituted in the tabernacle or what is now the temple. He's pointing back to all of these things and he's fulfilling them. He's exploding them into something new, but he's always referring to the old things. As Jesus is giving these new teachings like Sermon on the Mount, he is um, aware that their scriptures, the only scriptures they have are the Old Testament. 
what we call the Old Testament. That was just the scriptures, like Paul in his letters in the New Testament when he writes to the uh, first churches. When Paul says something about the scriptures, well, he can't be talking about the New Testament because he's currently writing it, right? So what he's talking about is the Old Testament. He's talking about those Old Testament scriptures, the prophets, the law, the stories, uh, the story of David, the story of Genesis, story of Numbers, all these things that we've looked at in previous lessons, previous series. And so what Jesus is saying is when you have someone who's a teacher of the law, when you have someone who's a Pharisee, if they truly will become a disciple in this kingdom, then they're going to have a storehouse of treasures, both all the old things that they've learned about scripture, about religion, about theology, and they'll have the new things that they learned by being a disciple. Who better represents this verse than the apostle Paul, someone who was a teacher of the law? who was set at the feet of Gamaliel, as Paul says. He doesn't just mean he sat there. Listen, what he means is the, the, the most important student got to sit closer and closer to the center. And Paul, in saying, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel, what he's letting you know is I was the star pupil of Gamaliel. And everybody knows who Gamaliel is. Jews today even talk about that Gamaliel. And so Paul says, I was front and center for Gamaliel. I was the star pupil under Gamaliel. I'm the Jewish Jew that there ever was. Paul gives his credentials, right? Talks about all the Jewish stuff. Then he says, but you know what? All of that I count as loss um, when I gain Christ. And Jesus and the gospel is what I preach now. But you see, as he preaches the gospel, he always preaches it out of the Old Testament. Peter in Acts chapter two, when he preaches the first gospel sermon, what does he use as his text? Joel, right? He uses Joel. He uses the uh, Psalms, right? So uh, Matthew, even in this gospel, he's using Isaiah. He's uh, using Jonah. He's pointing back to, to Solomon and to Judah and to Abraham and to Genesis, to Moses, the Torah. So you have these storehouses, the old treasures and the new treasures, and they come out together in someone who is a teacher of the law, someone who is a Pharisee, and now is a disciple of this kingdom. So again, as we look at the parallels between first century Jews and 21st century Christians, what is it that Jesus might say? Looking at the verse on the screen, allow me to paraphrase this. Uh, obviously, it's not the words of Jesus, but I think that this is something like what Jesus might say to us today. He might say, therefore, he said to them, every church member who becomes a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom treasures new and old. So Jesus doesn't come along to tear down churches Tear, tear apart church membership to tell you church membership is dumb and you shouldn't do it and you don't need a church to be a Christian. And uh, I know so many people that think they are following Jesus and have completely abandoned Jesus's body. And it's like, <laughs> I mean, that is, that is, um, that's like uh, if, you know, I have several other pair of glasses and they're all in my bedroom. It's like those glasses thinking they're helping me read right now. I mean, they're not on my body. <laughs> how could they be doing, how could they be doing anything? So Jesus is not coming to tear apart church membership, but what he is trying to do is elevate church membership into discipleship. He's trying to take religion and grow it, mature it into discipleship. He's not trying to do away with the law. He's trying to explode the law. He's trying to fulfill it into the big thing that it was originally meant to be, into the infinitely larger thing that it was meant for. And so Jesus ends this kingdom arrival, this parables discourse by saying, if you are one of these Pharisees, but you become a disciple, man, you've got the, you've got it all. It's going to be so great for you. Unfortunately, we know many teachers of the law did not believe Jesus and ended up putting him to death.
I'm going to go back and look at some of these parables. Uh, we're just going to kind of skim some things real quick. Just a few minutes left. So notice that a lot of these parables are in pairs. So you have the here the parable of the wheat and the weeds is about. And so what you have in these two parables, the fact that they're paired together, here's a storytelling thing that hopefully you learned in you know freshman English. But if not, you're going to learn it here. Whenever you see two very similar things in a story, what you should look at is how they are different, because that's the part you're going to remember and walk away with. When you see two things that are similar, you're going to remember what's different. So here you have two stories about planting seed, and there is some kind of fruit. In the first, the story is all about the soil and the seed's ability to grow to go from a seed and to grow big and produce fruit, right? The second is about wheat and weeds. So wheat is your fruit. You get the wheat berry, right? You get the wheat that's growing a grain. The wheat grows and it's healthy, but you also have weeds that are growing up and they will need to be separated. And so what Jesus is doing is he's taking a story about the expansion of the kingdom from throwing it on a path to throwing it in good soil and now it grows to what's going to happen at the end of time with the kingdom, where the uh, weeds will be separated from the wheat. Again, reinforcing the story that we've heard numerous times. If you bear good fruit, then you will be kept. If you bear bad fruit, you'll be cut off and thrown into the fire. That's something that Jesus says a number of times. And there's there's no type C, right? There's just There's no wheat, weeds, and something else. There's no wheat that grows that doesn't have a wheat berry on top of it. It's just wheat and weeds. That's it. You're either growing fruit or you're a weed. Remember uh, in the last lesson we looked at, Jesus said, look, you're either uh, gathering with me or you're scattering. You're either bringing people in or you're sending them running. You're doing one of the two, but there's no complacency here. There's no middle ground. There's no just existing. There's no passivity. There's no, well, I'm sitting on a pew every Sunday. That's all I'm doing. You look, you're either gathering, you're either gathering or you're scattering. It's one of the two. Jesus uh, doubles down on that theme here in these parables. Let's look at the next pair of parables. So um, here we have the hidden treasure in a field and the merchant in search of fine pearls. Now, at first look, these two parables are, appear to be basically identical. What are they trying to tell you? Oh, the kingdom of heaven, it's worth everything. It's worth giving up everything to be a part of this kingdom. That's the general sense of the parable, and we can understand that. But if Jesus is sort of hiding some things from us, we should seek out, we should really get to the bottom of these parables. One of the beautiful things about Jesus's metaphors and parables is that they go really far. They run really deep. So let's look at these. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field. A man comes along and happens upon this treasure and discovers it, sells everything he has and buys that field. Here's the difference. Look at the second one. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. So in the previous parable, the kingdom of heaven is like the treasure. In the second parable, the kingdom of heaven is not like the pearl. Instead, it's like the merchant. You see the difference there? Why is that different? Well, let's, let's look. So in the first parable, you have someone who is happening upon the treasure. In the second one, you have someone who is going out in search of something that's worth something. 
So the way I have been studying this and thinking about this over the last few days is like this. The first of each of these pairs is kind of cracking open the religion paradigm. And the second of each of these pairs is pushing the discipleship paradigm. So in the parable of the sower, yeah, yeah, you, you, you hear the word of God all the time, but if you are really good soil, you, you, you'd see it really have a lot of fruit. That's starting to break open the religion paradigm. The wheat and uh, weeds story is about what's going to happen at the end, that there's some judgment day coming, that there's going to be some separation, and only those who bear fruit are going to make it out of the fire. That's a discipleship paradigm. You got to go out there and bear fruit, right? It's really building on that first parable. I think you have the same thing happening here. Okay, even a Gentile might stumble upon God and the Torah and, oh, God is in my life. God exists. And, uh, oh, that, that's a good thing. I guess I believe that now. And he's found a good thing and he might give up everything that he has to find it. That's someone that has, that got religion, that came to Jesus, right? That's somebody who, who found God. In the second story, though, you have the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. So the reign of God is like a merchant going out, looking for what? Looking for pearls. And when he finds a pearl, he sells everything that he has to buy the pearl. So the reign of God, it's God who is willing to give up everything to buy the pearl. It's God. It's Jesus who gives up heaven to come down here and experience a, a, a human death and human pain. Why? For me, for you. I think in this parable, one way to look at it is we're the pearl. Jesus gave up everything. The reign of God, the reigning king, left the kingdom in search of us because we were so valuable to him like a pearl. See how these two go together, that the kingdom of heaven is worth everything, but it's also got everything good in it. Another parallel way to interpret this is the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. Well, if you and I are disciples in the kingdom of heaven, we're part of that reign of God. We're part of that kingdom of heaven that's going out. You and I should be out there searching for pearls. We should be out there doing the work of God. We should be out there looking for those persons of peace that we've talked about before, looking for souls to save. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And that should be, that should be our goal too. It's Jesus that does the saving, but Jesus puts his mission into our hands. And he says, hey, I came to make you fish for people. In uh, Luke 10, he says, hey, the fields are white unto harvest, All right? We've seen that also in the missionary discourse here. So when you have these two parables that seem like they're almost identical, when you look at what's different, some meaning really leaps out of them. That's the storytelling thing that we're looking at here. And that's why it's very important to understand who Matthew's writing to and really kind of look at this with a fine-tooth comb. You don't need to get down into like individual words and really nitpick and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, if you look at all of these parables, you see when it says the kingdom is like blank, that blank really stands for God or, you know, the, the kingdom of God or the church or something like that. And so when it says the kingdom of God is like treasure, and the next one said the kingdom of God is like a merchant. There's a reason. There's a reason those are kind of flip-flopped and we need to look at it and see why they're different. So hopefully I've explained that in a way that makes sense. Let's go back to the text and look at the uh, last two parables here. These are not a pair. Right, we have already, the last one is the one about the, the the house, the storm. That's really more of a simile, more than a parable. So, really, the last parable here is the parable of the net. It does not belong to a pair. What does it do? The kingdom of heaven is like a large net thrown into the sea, collected every kind of fish, and then they sort through the worthless fish from the good fish. And then again, it kind of explains this is the angels will go out at the end of the age, and it uses language almost exactly 
like the wheat and the tares of the wheat, the wheat and the weeds uh, back up here in beginning in verse 24. So again, when two things are very similar, you might look at what's different. If Jesus has already told a very vivid story, a very understandable story, a very detailed story about the wheat and the weeds, and we understand the separation of the good and the evil, and we understand all that, why would Jesus tell this other story? And why would Matthew put it at the end of all of these kingdom parables? I think simply because it's about fish. Because that's Jesus's language. What does he say in 419? I will make you fish for people. And so by telling this parable of the net, what Jesus is doing is taking all of these parables that he's told about the kingdom, taking all of this that he's talked about, um, you know, those who do not produce fruit will be thrown into the fire. He's taking all that stuff and he's wrapping it up in a fishing story, wrapping it up in a fishing package. Jesus is letting you know, when I said I would make you fishers of men, this is what I was talking about. So when we go back and we look at the... Um, the, the, the way everything is laid out here, and we see that kingdom arrival, that's the Kai that changes everything. What we see in Matthew 11 and 12 is Jesus saying, guess what? I'm more than the Messiah. I'm God. And in Matthew 13, the, the, this middle discourse, the very middle of Matthew, what he says is, because I am God, you can't just be a church member anymore. If you want to be part of my kingdom, my kingdom is on the move. My kingdom is taking its reign and its authority over everything. And I give you that authority to be part of it as a disciple. And if you're a disciple, you're going to be gathering. You're going to be fishing. You're going to be out there with your net, bringing them in by the droves. You're going to be producing good fruit 30, 60, 100 times more. And if you're not producing fruit, Jesus has made it very clear you'll be cut off and thrown into the fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we've asked this question in the previous lesson, are you gathering or scattering? Are you passive? Are you a passive church member? Or are you active? sharing God's love with your neighbor? How can you love your neighbor if you don't give them the thing that should mean the most to them? If, if it's a treasure in a field that you happened upon, how could you um, not be someone who, who goes and shares that with your neighbor if you love them? And so the question I asked at the beginning of this lesson, you know, what's required to be a Christian? Well, admittedly, that is, of course, a bad question. So what is the better question. Instead of what's required to be a, a Christian, maybe a better question is, how do I trust and follow Jesus? What's required to be a Christian, that has a that has a stopping point, that has a low limit, that's seeking a bottom, right? But how do I trust and follow Jesus is a question that has no end. It's a question that has no top. It just keeps going and growing and exploding and producing fruit it just keeps loving, just keeps growing in mercy. How do I trust and follow Jesus? And so the question, are you a gatherer or a scatterer? Are you passive? Are you active? This is not just about some kind of condemnation, but this really is about, are you chasing after the thing that matters and that is moving? Are you chasing after the only valuable thing in the whole world? There's an early church father. His name is John Chrysostom. 
And uh, I like to go and see what he has to say about different passages that I'm studying. And here are some things that he said about the parables in this passage here, talking about the treasure and the, uh, the pearl merchant. He says, Seest thou how both the gospel is hid in the world and the good things in the gospel? Except thou sell all, thou buyest not. And except thou have such a soul, anxious and inquiring, thou findest not. And about the final text, about the storehouse bringing out treasures of new and old, he says, Let us then hear as many of us neglect the reading of the scriptures to what harm we are subjecting ourselves to what poverty. If we are neglecting seeking Jesus, trusting and following him by daily reading, daily chasing him through the scriptures, if we are neglecting that, we are subjecting ourselves to such to such harm, such poverty. With what poverty will we be able to find the good things in the world? So in this kingdom arrival section, we begin by asking, is Jesus the Messiah? And we end with lessons that is the course, the theme of Matthew, religion versus discipleship. Are you going to be religious, passive, or are you going to be a disciple active? Are you going to be passive or active? Maybe the best way to phrase this is to say, hey, are you just maintaining or are you multiplying? Because those who multiply and bear fruit are going to find joy and family and everything good. And those who are just maintaining, you're actually scattering. And you're going to be thrown into the fire. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.